Hi, I'm David Green, and welcome back to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. In today's age, where data and technology are revolutionising the way we work and interact with others, there is no doubt that adopting a digital mindset is key to remaining competitive in both business and in our careers. So in today's episode, I'm delighted to be talking to Paul Leonardi, Duca Family Professor of Technology Management at UC Santa Barbara and co-author of a terrific new book, The Digital Mindset, where we'll be discussing how, as HR professionals and leaders, we can help ourselves and our teams become more digitally fluent. It's becoming more and more clear to leadership that they can't know everything that's going on on their teams, right? There's so much invisible work that's taking place that they need help to understand what are the trends and what are the dynamics. And I think that's creating a really unique moment in time for HR to be able to step in and say, we can help provide you with some of this kind of analysis that's gonna give you the capabilities to make your own decisions about how to lead your teams in the best way. And so the pandemic is kind of breaking down this you know, macho myth, right? That the leader needs to know everything about their team without any outside help. Our conversation will also cover the importance of using a relational approach to analytics to help improve workforce efficiency. And of course, what organisations and HR leaders need to do to start helping their employees and their HR teams attain Paul's infamous 30% rule of digital fluency. I started our conversation by asking Paul to tell me a little bit about his background and areas of expertise and interest. I am a consultant, professor, researcher, wear many of those hats in the area of the future of work and digital transformation. I've spent the last two decades really working with, boy, hundreds of companies that are trying to implement new digital technologies to improve the work lives of employees, to uh, increase productivity, to enhance organizational culture, you name it, right? And I am trained, and my background is in um, engineering. I have a PhD from, from Stanford School of Engineering. But I really focus on the human aspects of using new technologies and the data they produce to help make the workplace better. And so I interface a lot with HR leaders, uh, who I know is a major audience for your podcast, um, and you know senior leaders of companies that are really trying to get a handle on how do we get our employees using the best kinds of tools, making the best sense of data, and creating a better workplace? Uh, and Paul, you've been you've been uh, banging the drum for data analytics for for over twenty years now, which is uh, which is really impressive. Uh, how have attitudes to it have changed over time? You know, looking back, are there some milestone moments or times when excitement ebbed or flowed? Yeah, I think if we take the long view and we think about what are some major changes that have happened in HR, you know, related to data analytics and technology, there's a couple of key movements or moments that I would highlight. The first was kind of in the mid 2000s, early 2000s. What I really started to see at that time was that HR was transitioning from being more of a, a service arm. And I, and I don't mean any offense, right, to say that HR is a, had, had sort of been a, a service organization, right, but moving to being much more of a strategic partner with the business units. 
And that HR had a lot of value that it could provide beyond simply helping to onboard employees and deal with personnel issues and the like um, that would help leaders be better leaders and help employees to make, um, you know, to have more profound experiences within the workplace. And that was a transition that I think really began at the, you know, the dot-com boom in the early 2000s when there's so many employees, right, were joining the organization and HR needed to start to rethink itself a little bit about what kinds of capabilities it could provide. And what we've seen since that period is that I think HR has been moving in ever more concerted ways to becoming a trusted partner. And what I want to, I know we'll talk in our questions today about how data and analytics and and new digital tools fit into that. But that was certainly one change that I saw. I think another key one was probably just at the beginning of uh, the last decade, you know, maybe 2012, 2013 timeframe was the the move towards what I'd call the analytics revolution, right? That the seeds of that really began in HR they had been prevalent in other parts of the organization, operations and manufacturing for sure. But it really was, I think, the rise of, you know, SaaS-based tools that began to proliferate around this time frame that gave HR access to many, many more data sources and without the capabilities across the rest of the organization to make sense of and analyze or harness those data sources, HR became a place that could provide strategic value to the business partners and making sense out of what are what things are affecting our employees and what kinds of ways and are there ways of understanding broader trends in workforce that uh, really could help us to be better leaders and managers. So that it is a change that that we're seeing or that we saw, I think, start to happen around that time frame. And certainly, um, you know, authors like Tom Davenport, right, that wrote about the analytics revolution. Um, you know, his book came out in the mid, mid-teens and a number of different kinds of uh, articles and conferences that began to focus on people analytics. You know, Wharton launched their uh, people analytics conference right, right around this time as well. So that movement began to happen. I still don't think today that that movement has reached its peak, though, you know, that we haven't seen the promise of data analytics and thinking through technology implementation in HR really reached its apex yet, that companies are not taking advantage of it still in the right kinds of ways. And perhaps that has something to do with how HR has or has not positioned their role in this process. So I know we can talk about those kinds of things. But those are some of the major shifts that I've seen. And the the last thing I'll kind of highlight here is that the pandemic has been a really interesting time, of course, for HR. And you have had a number of guests recently that have talked about this, right, and the challenges that have been associated and the opportunities that arise with the pandemic. But in the area of data and analytics, the major change that I think we're seeing now is that Comes, you know, winter of 2020, there was this massive and wholesale transition to remote work. And that meant that everyone across the organization was doing their interaction, their communication, their work on digital platforms. And as we know, those digital platforms, if they do nothing else wonderfully, they record and create metadata out of every interaction that occurs. And what that has given HR practitioners, what it has given the data scientists that live in the HR function, this unparalleled and really heretofore unimaginable data set that we may be able to use to be able to to dive in and understand and uncover 
insights about employee behavior and trends and suggestions for you know improving our workforce because we have data at such a granular level that we never had before. And there are pros and cons associated with that. There are changes that need to be made to HR for that really to sort of reach its fruition. But that I think we're in the midst of a third major revolution that I've seen, at least in my career span, about what HR can do and what it will do in the future. We've seen ourselves with the work we do at Insight 222 that the pandemic has kind of elevated people analytics teams um, and HR functions uh, within companies. And those companies that are kind of already invested in people analytics are reaping the dividends of those those investments at the moment. So the data actually gives you that nuance on on you know what they coast companies want to use the office for potentially, who should be coming in, when they should be coming in, how you're going to structure work as well. Um, and then we can really start to understand perhaps, and I know you've written about this in the past, how we can actually design our offices as well. You know, so understanding how people are using offices. So I think as you said, I totally agree. We're only we're still only scratching the surface in many respects. <laughs> True. Do you mind if we dwell on this for just a second? No, no, no. Please, please do. The the, the thing I wanted to bring up that that you mentioned here is about the shift from HR kind of using using data to support HR functions versus helping the businesses, right? And having HR uh, occupy a strategic role in using data and analytics to support the businesses. And I would talk to leaders across the businesses. They were not extremely receptive to this idea. This is, you know, pre-pandemic, right? And a big part of the tension, I think, has been that there is this, I'll call it a myth, right? But that a really good leader in a business should know what's happening all the way up and down the hierarchy in their business. They should have really, you know, a deep and penetrating insights into what's happening on their teams. And that if an outside partner like HR were needed to come in and help to give them insights, they were in some ways failing as a leader. And I think this is a real dominant myth that, you know, we we sow the seeds of in business schools as well, right? And I taught, uh, I've taught in a business school for many years. And we tell managers, right, you need to have your finger on the pulse of your teams and you need to know what's happening. And so the thought of bringing in an outside counsel, right, outside expertise to help you is especially an outside that's within your company, right, you know, um, is is not seen as the hallmark of a great manager. However, one of the things that the pandemic has been really good for in this capacity is that as teams have become distributed, you know, and as senior leaders increasingly don't just manage several teams, but teams of teams, and we're seeing that trend proliferate right across so many organizations, it's becoming more and more clear to leadership that they can't know everything that's going on on their teams, right? There's so much invisible work that's taking place that they need help to understand what are the trends and what are the dynamics. And I think that's creating a really unique moment in time for HR to be able to step in and say, we can help provide you with some of this kind of analysis that's going to give you the capabilities to make your own decisions about how to lead your teams in the best way. And so the pandemic is kind of breaking down this, you know, macho myth, right, that the leader needs to know everything about their team without any outside help. And now I think is a great moment for HR to be able to seize this opportunity because people are much more receptive to that than they have been in the past. Where do you see that we are today for HR? Where is HR today? And 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 what does that mean for the, the, the future for HR? The large uh, more sophisticated organizations that I work with have a more expanded and generous view these days of what HR is and what HR can do. And it's the 
kind of mid-size, small to mid-size companies that seem to be stuck in a 20th century mindset of what, what HR is, right? You know, I go to HR when there's a personnel problem, right? I go to HR for help when we are onboarding new employees. I go to HR for these kinds of issues. And the field, the discipline of HR has so much, you know, needs to be providing those kinds of uh, service-related activities. And, but that's a part of what they do, right? And what HR can really be doing is becoming more of a trusted advisor to, to the businesses. And I think today we're in this dance of some businesses uh, kind of understanding that and getting on board with that, others still being reluctant, and HR really trying to still figure out what is our value proposition for the businesses. And that it can't be the same thing that it was in the past. We also have to be careful. We have to step delicately because we know that leaders want to make their own decisions and own their own decisions, but they increasingly need better insights in order to do that. Where do some of these analytic capabilities, where can they be or where should they be located in the organization? Should it be that we have our businesses running their own analyses and trying to come up with these kinds of insights? Or does it make sense for um, an organization like HR to be doing that? And there's tension across so many different organizations, right, about this decentralized versus more centralized approach to how we make sense out of uh, employee and managerial activities and a sense of employee well-being. Um, But I think that the, the thing that's happening that's exciting for me right now in terms of where HR is going is that many, many organizations are recognizing that with the move to distributed work and remote and hybrid work arrangements, the increasing emphasis on employee well-being, right, that there's only so much I can do as a leader to move the needle in those areas while also trying to make sure that, you know, I'm keeping a strong culture within my team, that I'm also moving forward on our operational deliverables, and I need partners to help me do this. And how HR can negotiate that partnership and frame that partnership is again still open to some discussion. But that's what that's that's what I'm seeing is happening right now, and that's really exciting. Typically, it's the larger companies that have invested in people analytics teams and the technologies that support that as well. Now, obviously, there are smaller, medium companies that have invested in people analytics as well, but it's not as widespread it's certainly in in my experience and those companies some of those companies that have invested in people analytics are only really using it for reporting and kind of rear view mirror um stuff which is helpful but you know you want more than that you know marketing certainly has a lot more than that so it'd be it's interesting yeah i mean i mean i'd love to do a study of it and to see is it is is hr perceived as being a a, a strategic partner to the business in organizations where it's got that muscle of people analytics um versus where they don't have that 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 muscle that they can utilize. It's not just about people analytics, of course. It's about the people leading HR. It's a you know it's a you know everything else, the investment in it. It's about the mindset and everything else and the skills, of course. Um, but interesting discussion. We will be back in just a moment, where Paul and I will be delving into the importance of a relational approach to analytics, and how to use the thirty percent rule to upskill your career and have more impactful and productive conversations. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Equate. The most important resource for any company is its people. However, in today's rapidly changing economy, 
employees are the first to suffer when companies are not prepared for change. While companies may invest into transformation programs, many still do not have the right people with the necessary skills for the current workplace, let alone what may be required in the next three years. Equate helps bridge that gap by connecting people with purpose through strategic workforce planning. With the Equate platform, you can leverage the talent you already have to create a blueprint for success and achieve your business goals. Take charge of your smarter workforce decisions and visit equate.ai today. That's eq8.ai. Welcome back to my conversation with Paul Leonardi. You wrote a fantastic article, Paul, with uh, Noshia Contractor back in 2018. He's um, in a half of business through about relational analytics, um, also known as organisational network analytics, also known as relationship analytics. And I'd love to hear a little bit from you um, if you can talk a little bit about what a relational approach to people analytics actually means. So I think the place to start is in a distinction that we that Nashir and I have been talking about for a long time and that we opened that article in Harvard Business Review with. And it's it's thinking about a distinction between individual attributes and relational attributes. When we think of people analytics generally, right, whenever I talk to a company about people analytics, they think, okay, uh, how long has an employee been working here? How many teams have they worked on? How long is their commute to work, right, if they have some extra data? How many performance reviews have they been through? So all of these are attributes of individuals, right? They they fall into this category of human capital, right? It's the, the things that I own um, that I carry with me regardless of what job I'm in or what organization I work for. Those are essential elements to running a good people analytics operation and to making sense out of employee behavior and trends. But while they're necessary, they're not sufficient. And that's because so much of how our work really gets accomplished is through the relationships we have with other people. So while individual attributes are one side of the people analytics equation, the second side is really what we call relational attributes. And relational attributes are really no more than um, in thinking about what's the social capital that any individual has within the organization. You know, what's the nature of the relationships that they have with other people? And, you know, in that article, what, what, what Nashira and I did was we outlined what we called structural signatures, which were essentially the models that you can use to identify key variables, like who's likely to be an influencer, who is someone that we would expect to be able to come up with innovative ideas at some regular basis. Could we identify vulnerabilities uh, if someone left this position, you know, would we cut off access to a supplier organization, for example? But what we didn't talk about in that article really was what are the use cases for those? And that's what I've been spending basically the years since we wrote that piece, uh, you know, working with companies on. And some of the key use cases really have been around team design. You know, so you're trying to put together a task force or a uh, you know a team that's going to tackle a really key challenge within the organization, and we need that team to get up to speed really quickly. They need to interact flawlessly with one another. They also need to pull in lots of unique information from different parts of the organization to make their decision. We can use relational analytics to identify that optimal team structure. 
we can use it for DEI efforts. And this is one I'm really excited about is, you know, companies are really good at using demographic data to identify what a diverse team could or should look like, you know, so we can look and say, okay, well, we don't have enough women on this team, right? So we're going to add some more women to it, or we don't have enough African-Americans or enough, you know, uh, Latino Latinos on this team, right? Or whatever the case might be. Um, and we can put people on the team that gets to sort of a diversity question or issue that we might have, but just having people from diverse, you know, demographic backgrounds or cognitive backgrounds or functional backgrounds, whatever the case may be, isn't enough. We need to make sure those people are included, right? That they are being listened to, that they are being asked questions, that they're giving and sharing their knowledge and information. That's the reason to have diversity in our organizations, not to check a box, right? And what relational analytics can help us to do is get a sense of that I in DEI, right? Are the diverse members of our team actually included in the conversation? Are they central to the discussion and to the key decisions that are being made? And that's an area that's really exciting that I think relational analytics can help us unlock. And I completely agree, you know, relational ana analytics allows us to go beyond counting, you know, the need to measure this, not just through surveys, although surveys definitely still have their place, as I'm sure you told me that, but you, but through through really mining this passive data and not looking at at, at the individual level, of course, but trying to understand some of the patterns and, and and aggregating that, you seeing more and more companies implementing this now. They're starting to. There there are a couple of challenges, and you know if if you're interested, I'll, I'll outline I think what a few of those challenges are. You know, many of the many of the organizations that we work with, you know, first and foremost are concerned with privacy and employee privacy. And this is a really important issue that can't be just swept under the rug. You know, I talk to lots of, of leaders and particularly in HR that say, wow, this is, you know, fascinating idea that we could be using this digital exhaust to um, collect, you know, re relational data that we would not otherwise have access to. And the problem is that, you know, are, are we being too invasive with our employees? You know, or did they know that we are looking at these data? Um, wh what are they worried about exactly? And a big part of the work I do with companies is to try to develop what are our humane, transparent, and reasonable solutions for dealing with this privacy concern. And one of the key ways that we, we've come across you know, to deal with this in many organizations is to be very clear to employees that we see tremendous opportunity to unlock and uncover patterns of interaction and employee behavior by paying attention to, you know, the kinds of communication that people have with each other across the company that can improve our organization and help perhaps give you insights into improving, you know, your own performance um, in ways that will benefit the entire organization. And in order to try to achieve those goals, there are certain kinds of data we're going to be collecting, right, about your communication. And where most organizations tend to put a, a hard line at this point, and I think it's the right place to put it is that we will collect data about your interactions, but not on the content of your interactions, right? So I, you know, I'll know if Paul and David, um, you know, are sharing an email or DMing each other in Slack, but we will never look into what you're saying to David, you know, that there's a, a bright line there that we will not cross. So that's one assurance that many companies give. Then what we often do to deal with this privacy concern is to say, we are going to show you any data you know, in a dashboard, let's say, right? Any data 
that pertains to you. So if there are um, analyses that we're running to try to compute, for example, you know, is, is who are the key influencers, you know, in this organization or in this department? And that does a couple of things. First, I think it really helps to show employees that there's not much nefarious that's going on here. So a lot of this just ends up being like, if we share it with employees and we we're very transparent about what we're doing, these just become more data points for people to improve their own behavior and to be reflective about the things that they're good at. A second one, though, is about the technical capabilities of being able to move from raw digital exhaust data to data models that turn that digital exhaust into actual organizational networks. And that is not a straightforward approach. And that's something that, you know, I've been working on with my students and in in collaboration with Nashir in joint research projects that we have trying to understand, you know, what are the best ways to create data models that actually represent robust employee interaction? Part of what we have to do is make this transition right between the kind of the raw data and the data model. And then once we have an acceptable data model, then we need to be able to run these uh, structural signature analyses to identify what are things that are happening and then relate those to use cases. So there are some technical components that many organizations struggle with in how do I extract that data and how do I create the data models and how do I run the structural signatures? And then there are more managerial issues that the organizations struggle with, which is then how do I take those kinds of insights that I'm getting from these analyses and what are the use cases to which I put those? What we're finding is that, you know, there are a number of companies and I'm working with some of them as well, you know, that are on the software provider side that are trying to develop these kinds of tools that will create those data models, right? Run those structural signatures, you know, correlate them with certain KPIs for you so that you really have to only deal mostly with the managerial issues, not with the data issues. So I think if you look, think about privacy, you think about the data side and you think about the data translation application side, these are the three elements that are still up for a lot of negotiation and are, are slowing the, you know, the movement towards using digital exhaust for these kinds of uh, predictive analytics. Which leads quite nicely, I think, to uh, the next question. So we're moving to talk a bit about the book. Uh, I think, because that third piece, that data translation, and particularly as we think about HR professionals and, and also managers in the business, frankly, as well, you know, your book is very practical and it's obviously aimed to to empower people to feel that they can adopt a digital mindset. What are the main reasons and, you know, that for people to feel resistant in this area? And, you know, does it come down to individual personality type? size of organization they're in, attitude of their own leaders. Love to hear, you know, some of the research, and I'm sure our listeners would love to hear some of the research that you found with the, the sort of main main reasons for resistance. Well, so one of the things, the, the reason that we wrote this book, The Digital Mindset, is that, you know, Sadal, my co-author, who's a professor at the Harvard Business School, and I have, uh, you know, done lots of the kinds of projects with companies that I described to you here. You know, my focus is, is has been more on the HR side, right? Analytics and, um, you know, technology and Sadal's has been a little bit more on the business side, which is, you know, help, helping remote teams kind of be successful in the wild. And the, the thing that we both really have noticed so often is that there's a reluctancy amongst many people across the organization um, to fully embrace a lot of the technology and data changes that are characteristic of the digital economy. 
because they say, I, I just am not sure what it means to be digital and what skills do I have? And I'm, I'm not a, a computer programmer, right? I don't know how to code in Python or, or Ruby, right? And I, I don't know how to run advanced multinomial models. So like, am I left in the dust? Like what, what's, what's the story, you know? So we decided to, to write this book that could try to say, here are some fundamental skills that you need to know. And if you can develop these skills, you're going to be able to shift the way that you think and you'll be able to ask new questions and you'll be able to interact with your colleagues in new ways because you have a new vocabulary. Uh, and so we call that change the uh, mindset shift, right? And so we say you need to develop this digital mindset. What we do in the book is we say, uh, you know, mindset is basically uh, um, approaches. They're approaches for how we, um, you know, orient towards work and our life. And we talk about three fundamental approaches that you need to develop a digital mindset. You need an approach to collaboration that recognizes that, you know, we are increasingly collaborating with, uh, you know, advanced AI powered robots and bots as teammates. You need an approach to collaboration that recognizes that the people that we work with and interact with are going to be remote and distributed, and we're not going to see them in person very often. And there's a whole host of uh, interpersonal and social dynamics that need to change when that is a reality. We talk about developing an approach to computation that you need to understand about how data are uh, collected how data are categorized, how data are stored, how data are analyzed, what data are included and what data are not, and what the implications for that are. And we spend a whole whole chapter in the book basically talking about data. And it's not a complex, you know, like mathy chapter, but it's really about understanding that data is a social product. You know, data aren't objective things that exist out there in the world waiting to be uncovered. But that the way that we instrument our environment and the way that we monitor people on their machines and the way that we classify those data and the uh, algorithms that we push those data through all massage it and change it and turn it into particular kinds of objects that we use to make predictions with. And you need to understand how that happens, regardless of what role you're in in the company. And you need to have some rudimentary knowledge of statistics. Because, you know, as we move to an increasingly data-driven world where insights are being demanded to, to be derived from data and analysis, you know, if somebody tells you this is a significant result, you need to be able to say, is it really? You know, like, show me the confidence interval on that. You know, you need to understand, did they run it through the right kind of statistical model? You don't need to be able to run those models yourself in most cases, but you need to speak the language. And then the final approach is what we call an approach to change. And that just is simply to recognize that, the world is no longer a bunch of uh, long periods of dormancy or stasis punctuated by rapid events of change. And then you go back to a period of like everything is calm and quiet for a while. No, we're in a constant state of, of transition and a constant process of transition at this point, right? Moving from one data to new data to one technology to new technology to one consumer need to different consumer needs. And so reorienting to the world in a way that recognizes that has implications for how we think about, you know, experimenting in our organizations, how we think about security, how we think about culture, and how we think about training and upskilling. So all this is to say that we say you need these three approaches to collaboration, computation, and change to develop a digital mindset, and you need some skills to be able to get there. And uh, the the good news is that you don't need to be an expert in any one of these areas, we find. You outlined something in the book which I think will be the music to the ears of many people listening here. It's a 30% rule. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's the place to go next, right? Is that um, we, our argument 
and this is grounded in, in lots of data, is that you need about 30% fluency in these different topics to be conversant enough to ask the right questions and make smart decisions in the digital age. And we, we use the analogy here to learning a foreign language. You know, so uh, most, you know, uh, researchers of foreign language agree that if you have about 12,000 words in English, at least, then you have roughly native level proficiency, right? Native level fluency. But you can be a really productive contributor with about 3,500 to 4,000 words. You know, you don't need to be fluent to get along well and to interact with people smoothly. And that's a really nice analogy to what we mean by the 30% rule, right? Like if you were in a data science function, you need to know like a lot of data science. But if you're interacting with a data scientist, you need to know enough to be able to ask the right kind of questions. You need to be able to make sense and interpret what data and analyses they're giving you and get to that 30%. And you can do that. And so in the book, we try to basically help people get to the 30% in these areas. I've seen stuff out there talking about HR professionals have to become data scientists. They don't. But that 30% is so important because analytics is really about asking the right, or getting down to the right questions that you can test with analytics. So that's that's part one of that. So if you think of yourself as an yes. HR business partner interacting with the business, then can you ask the right questions to drill down on what are the real problems that we could potentially measure with analytics? And then, as you said, the second part of that is how can we take the insights that the data scientists have found and how can we translate that into a language that's going to resonate with the business leaders that we're working with, if you're HR business partners? How can we manage the change and how can we measure the impact? Um, I mean, that's that's really key, isn't it? And from the HR perspective, I think there's two ways to really think about this. One is how do HR leaders and professionals get to that 30% themselves? And they, they need to for all the reasons you just described, David, right? That it's, it's really important. But it's really important that HR and L&D is helping the rest of the organization to also develop their 30%. And we outline in the book, uh, we have an appendix. We talk about this in the last section, but we also have an appendix of some companies that we think have done a great job of you know, upskilling and reskilling. And we kind of do uh, an overview of the kinds of programs that they've put together to help employees get to that 30% in these different areas. And the one thing that we've seen that's so, so essential for any kind of digital transformation initiative to be successful is that it's not enough to like hire technical people to do the technical stuff, that everyone across the organization needs to have that digital mindset because you need everyone rowing in the same direction. How do they get to the 30% stage? So let's say... You know, one way is obviously you hope your company is going to support you. But are there other, as an individual, how else could you um, potentially um, reach this level? Yeah, well, I think a start is to read the book. And I, I, I don't mean that in a glib way, really. But like um, we, we tried it. We worked really hard to provide, to distill what do we think are the key essential ingredients that you need to know in each of these areas. So that'll at least, you know, put you on the field, right? Next is you want to be able to move across the field in some way. And if your organization is not supporting you, the good news is there are so many different resources out there available to us electronically today for doing these things. I was trained as a, a social scientist and uh, I worked at a PR company and then decided to go back and get my PhD uh, from a college of engineering. And boy, that was hard, right? I had to like develop a whole set of skills in programming and operations management and areas that I didn't know anything about. 
Um, and that was really, for me, the start of developing a digital mindset, right? Was building those skills. But that was 20 plus years ago now. Um, and so since then, I have taken, you know, um, executive education courses from different universities. I have been in some open enrollment. Stanford had this great like CS undergraduate open enrollment program to kind of learn the basics of some new coding lang uh, programming languages. Um, I've taken several different courses on uh, what used to be lynda.com, which is now LinkedIn Learning, um, to constantly refresh my skills. And so part of it is the recognition that, you know, even if you even if you do have some technical chops, they are going to be obsolete if you don't continue to refresh them. But if you don't, I think what you need to do is figure out what are the areas in which I'm going to be interfacing most frequently and where the consequences are the highest and the most severe if I can't speak enough of the language to participate. And if that is in, you know, working with, you know, the operations team at your organization and they're, you know, using Markov models, right, to, to make predictions about supply chain and you don't understand that well enough, then that's an area where you need to seek out some learning to develop that 30% to be able to converse. So a lot of it, I think, needs to be self-directed. And they're, like I said, you know, with LinkedIn learning, with, um, you know, university, like extension and executive education courses, there are lots of great, low cost, um, you know, easy, asynchronous kinds of places that we can do that. I think the imperative for companies, though, moving forward, is going to be providing some of that essential training in house, right, where we know that our employees need it in mass. But also making sure that we have budgeted in time in our employees' you know, schedules for them to be doing the kind of learning that maybe happens outside the organization and supporting that. And whether that's supporting that with you know, some kinds of tuition reimbursement or PTO to be able to attend these sessions, today's good organizations need to recognize that making an investment in employee learning is absolutely essential to not only getting them to that 30%, but helping them to stay there. And it's interesting, actually, we, we know through, through, through the MyHR Future Academy that we deliver both to individuals and to organisations that the appetite from HR professionals to learn is, is definitely there. Yes, very um, high. So it's just that organisations need, need to support that. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you are looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the My HR Future Academy. It is a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you will see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gap deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Paul Leonardi on how to develop a data mindset. In this final section, Paul shares how organisations and HR leaders can help their employees embrace a digital mindset. You talked about there's a gap sometimes on the individual side, but what about the gap on the organisations that really want to lead in this area and those that get stuck behind? You know, is that gap expanding or contracting? And, and obviously you've worked with different organisations. You 
might not be able to name names of those that aren't doing this very well, but you might be able to give some examples of companies, you know, along with Atos. So you already mentioned that that are doing this well, that are um, helping people close this gap and, and, and get to that 30%. Yeah, well, I kind of like to think about this in terms of, uh, you know, if, again, it's all these little undergraduate things that you remember, but like, remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, and you, you kind of start at the basic level, like, you know, you need to have your, your safety needs met, right, and your physiological needs met, and then you can move up that pyramid to get to self-actualization needs. And, you know, I think that that's a, a useful way to think about where where companies can kind of fall on this, that... Um, you know, if if we're hemorrhaging employees and we're hemorrhaging money and we can't close our sales, right, and we can't do these kinds of things, probably investing in helping employees develop the right skills to have a digital mindset is not going to be top of mind for most organizations. And it's a difficult putt to try to get them to shift energy and resources in that direction. Um, but I, I think that that acquisition of those skills and moving into this digital mindset isn't something that you wait till the top of that pyramid to do, right? It needs to happen at a pretty low level because it's the thing that helps catalyze all kinds of productive behaviors in companies in the digital age. Um, so uh, yes, we've, I've worked with, you know, a number of companies that I would say are not, they're not huge. They are not uh, extremely technically sophisticated, that, but have embraced this idea of developing a digital mindset. And I think one of the big ways that they do that is that they have created policies for employees to be able to go out and get the kind of learning that they need. And I worked with a company recently, and I wasn't involved in this initiative, but I was really impressed by it, that they um, part of the uh, performance or the annual review process was for um, leaders to help employees to to work with the employees to develop a roadmap of the skills that they needed to develop to start to move into different kinds of roles within the organization. Some of those were formal roles, right? Like, you know, if you wanted to move from, you know, manager one to manager two, right? Like, what are the skills you need to do that? But some were much more informal roles. Like, you know, this employee has uh, an interest in... Um, you know, in uh, per personnel, and they want to be able to uh, interface more closely with the HR organization to learn some of these kinds of things. And that's an informal role that we could create for this person that would really help us in our team. So what is the kind of knowledge that somebody needs to be able to be a, an effective interlocutor in those kinds of conversations? And so what they do in, in not just develop like a performance plan, but they would develop an education plan for the employees about the skills you need to learn to achieve those formal and informal roles. And the company backed up that education plan with, you know, a certain allowance for employees to be able to go and take trainings that they needed, um, a certain number of extra days of uh, PTO, you know, that were applied for educational purposes. And so that demonstrated a real commitment to employees to improve their skills in these kinds of areas. And where I did get involved was, and this was kind of incidental to a, a different consulting project I was working on with them, is we we met, we had um, a group that was uh, in one of the divisions that was really gung-ho about this and was really aggressive about, you know, making sure that they were encouraging employees to take their PTO to do this. And there was another group that didn't. And we just looked at the data over about a three-year period. 
in those formal roles, because those are the only ones we had data about, but did people move to the formal roles more quickly if they had done more of these kinds of trainings? And it turned out that they did. There was a significant difference across these two groups in the speed at which they moved. And it wasn't, they didn't move quite twice as fast, but it was on the order of, you know, maybe like, you know, uh, if it was going to take normally on average a year and a half to move to this new role, someone did it in, you know, about 13 months or 14 months. So the trainings and the commitment to allowing employees to develop an educational pathway really made a difference in their upward mobility within the organization, which is great for the company in many ways, right? It increases retention, employee engagement, all of these kinds of activities. So I think that in order to take this on as a company, you have to have this mindset of continuous learning, right? It's that our employees are going to be most effective as individuals, as humans, as employees, as workers, if we can give them opportunities to constantly develop their skills. But they can't do that without our help. How might this, and it's a leading question, how might this impact the approach that companies take towards workforce planning, for example, if we think about the whole digitization kind of uh, agenda that's happening as well? Yeah, well, especially in a tight labor market, right? We want to make sure that we are creating the right employee skills internally to uh, allocate our employee effort into the places that we need it. And so in labor markets that are not so tight, the strategy, the default strategy is, well, we go just hire from the outside with the skills that we need. Um, But there's lots of evidence to suggest that there are major benefits for having more internal mobility on on a number of dimensions, right? Um, One is that as our organizations tend to get flatter over time, there are fewer opportunities for vertical mobility. And so we need to create more pathways for horizontal mobility in organizations. And we need to reward that, incentivize that, and create the right kind of status around that. So when we think of workforce planning, if we can create more horizontal avenues for employees to move that increase their domain knowledge, increase their technical responsibility, and give them a sense of career progression that just is horizontal rather than vertical, we do a great job, right? And there's a lot of evidence to suggest those employees stay longer. So that reduces, you know, our turnover and replacement costs. Uh, They tend to be happier, more motivated, committed employees. And it blunts against this problem of not being able to find enough outside talent. So we can't do that without arming our employees with the right kinds of knowledge and skills. And we can't arm them with those if we don't take a more comprehensive view to our employee learning programs. So this is a question, this is the last question. This is the one we're asking everyone on this series. What do you believe to be the the sort of two to three things that the HR will need to do to really add business value as as we come out of uh, the other side, hopefully, of the pandemic? Sure. Well, I think the first thing that they they can do, that they'll need to do, is to figure out how to be trusted advisors. And I don't just even mean strategic partners, right? But HR... I think, has the capability and potential to be trusted advisors to our businesses. And that means that when, as a leader, I'm running into an issue, right, with hiring, with staffing my team, with employee motivation or retention, that there is someone I can go to to get insights and advice not to do paperwork, you know, but to get real actionable insights that will allow me to make the best decision and that the decision is not being foisted upon me by somebody else. That's the key 
movement, I think, that HR needs to do to really, really add value. And I think HR, for all the reasons that we've talked about throughout this great conversation, is uniquely positioned to do. The first obvious place for HR to step in and help about that is about being that trusted advisor around managing a distributed remote workforce. Because there are so many changes that we're starting to see and that we are going to continue to see as they accelerate as we try this great experiment of the hybrid remote flex office environment, right? And the way, the best way to figure out like what is the right kind of model of constructing a team or do we have employees that are fully remote or they flex their schedules throughout the day or do we bring people on site in the office, you know, is through trying different scenarios out and collecting data about whether those scenarios work, how well they work to meet key objectives that we care about and using those data to then create you know, kind of policies for our various teams, and I don't mean formal, but informal, about, you know, what does this hybrid work environment look like? And every leader I talk to, right, in a, in a business is worried about this. They don't know what to do, right? And this is where HR can, again, become that trusted advisor that the pandemic, I think, is providing and will provide this unparalleled opportunity to accelerate this transition from HR to this trusted advisor role if the HR organization can take advantage of it in the right way by partnering. Perfect. And and a key part of that is the HR organization getting that 30% rule that we've exactly. we spoken about as well. Exactly. And and helping all the teams to develop that 30%. Well, Paul, that's a great point to, to, to leave this. You know, thank you so much for being a, a guest on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Please, can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you, follow you on social media and find out more about the book. Yeah, great. Well, lots of opportunities. Uh, you can see my my personal websites at paulleonardi.com. Um, it's very phonetic. Just sound it out. Uh, you can follow me at pleonardi1 at Twitter. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn and always happy to connect and enjoy having conversations on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find the book at your local your local bookstore or Amazon or bookshop, wherever you like to purchase at The Digital Mindset, what it really takes to thrive in the age of data analytics and AI. Well, thanks very much, Paul. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I've, I've learned a lot in the last hour or so. Great. Thanks so much, David. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it. My thanks again to Paul Leonardi for his great insights into adopting a digital mindset. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show with five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. You can also find out more about Insight 222 by going to insight222.com. We'll be back next week while I'll be having a conversation with Laura Schubert, Vice President of People Insights and Planning at MetLife on how they conquered their strategic workforce planning. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and take care.